Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Here in this session, we're going to talk about what we mean when we use the word feminism, okay? And I would start out by pointing out that it's sort of an ugly word, right? It's loaded with so many connotations and images of angry women glaring at the camera. The story is told of a women's studies scholar who was invited to speak to students at a well-known women's college, one of those fancy Eastern colleges. She asked for a show of hands of those in the audience who considered themselves feminists. And when virtually no one raised their hand, she asked why. One young girl sort of hesitantly raised her arm and said tentatively, because I like men. So one possible explanation for why feminism is now a sort of dirty word, I Googled it one day and the first thing to come up was the link to something called, you'll have to forgive the coarseness of this language, Bitch Magazine. You Google feminism, the first thing that comes up is, you know, B word magazine. Geez, I wonder, why is feminism a dirty word? The next on the list was a reference to the general category of radical feminism in the category of gender, race, and sexual politics. So I run this thing at, this, at St. Thomas called the Siena Symposium for Women, Family, and Culture, and we are trying to respond, as I, as I said, to John Paul's call for a new and explicitly Christian feminism, but we don't really like to use the word. You know, we're trying to figure out some other way to do it. But, um, uh, let's see, um, sometimes I feel like I need a t-shirt that says I am not one of them on it because no matter, let's see, sorry, men, men can sometimes confuse courage and strongly held opinions even if well-reasoned with uppity, right? right? It's hard to know how to enter into the discourse uh, sometimes, um, no matter how gently we might try to state our case. So Cardinal Ratzinger refers to this in his document on the collaboration of men and women as being caught up in the logic of sin. In spite of what everyone seems to want to insist on, women are actually extremely powerful. And we have to be careful to exercise that power prudently, whether that be in the home or the public square, or we actually contribute to what appears to be a persistent, sometimes rather acute hearing problem on the part of our boyfriends, husbands, and male colleagues. That's what I wrote anyway. All right. One point my husband actually said to me, you know, I, I just don't listen to you when you talk like that. I said, well, but honey, why, why not? Because he, he just, because I just don't. So you have to find out how to say it so that they'll listen. It's the strangest thing. Okay, but anyway, John Paul II told us we should not give up on the word feminism, that the fact that it makes us uncomfortable is an indication of something in need of healing, and that we should recover the real meaning of the word. He went, even went so far as to tell us that we actually need it, and it is up to women to figure it out. Pia quoted that today, paragraph 99 from Evangelium Vitae, 
He says there we are told, he says there that it is up to us to promote a new feminism unencumbered by models of male domination in order to acknowledge and affirm the true genius of women in every aspect of the life of society and overcome all discrimination, violence, and exploitation. Paragraph 99 of Evangelion Vitae is an amazing, amazing paragraph. Ironically, there are voices out there who are beginning to say that maybe we don't need feminism any longer. After all, women have made such strides over the last decades, maybe it's just an outdated concept, a movement in search of meaning, and there is some evidence of a loss of direction. A couple of years ago, there was this really interesting article in, um, or was it, it was in The Atlantic, by a feminist, uh, Susan Faludi, entitled American Electra. You might, if you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. American Electra by Susan Faludi. The article describes a feminism that is imploding across generational lines as the younger feminists try to take power away from the old ones, expressing boredom with feminist studies in dingy, sexless clothing and bran muffins, is how Faludi puts it. You know, women wearing really, you know, long skirts and Birkenstocks and dingy hairstyles and stuff. Their intention seems to be the development of what Faludi refers to as Lady Gaga feminism. As they seek to shift the focus to legitimizing their freedom to participate in one night stands and nameless sex, hard bodies in the kinds of clothes worn by Sarah Jessica Partner, Parker. I've never seen that show, but I have glanced at, you know, I see she must be all of a size one in Sex and the City, right? That's the kind of feminism that's now making its way and infiltrating our young women's consciousness. To be free means to be sexually active. The article is worth reading because it reveals that the problem with feminism as it is understood by the secular culture is that it refuses to acknowledge the natural role women have played and will continue to play in our culture, what one theologian refers to as the radiating influence of women, making it impossible for the transmission of its principles to be passed down from mother to daughter. You cannot naturally inherit an ideology. You have to be steeped in it until it finally replaces your natural instincts. So the feminism that's making its way is kind of constructed, right? And, it's, and the reason that feminism is imploding is because no one, people haven't been able to figure out how to transmit it. The older feminists, they fought their fight, and they're trying to get the younger women to fight the same fight, and the younger women don't get it. They're, they want a different fight. They want to they wear lipstick. That's important to them. They want to wear high heels. So the kind of feminism that they have is absolutely untransmittable, except through women's studies department. <laughs> okay. There are other voices who are saying, why worry about it? Maybe we don't even need feminism anymore. Aren't we done? There was once a real need for the mo movement. Long ago, women truly had to fight for basic freedoms, and that's a fact. When now we can vote, we can own property, we have as much to say about, about the way our lives go as men do. We can go to school where we want, we can work where we want, wear what we want, travel where we want. 
And if we want to stay home and raise babies, assisted by female doctors and respected by our enlightened husbands, then feminism has won that right for us too. Though you should know there's another feminist out there, lawyer and feminist philosopher Linda Hirschman argues in her work, Get to Work, a Manifesto for Women of the World, that women, a woman who chooses to be a SAM, it's an acronym, S-A-H-M, stay-at-home mom, is a parasite living off of her husband's hard work and that to do so is to, quote, perpetuate a mostly ruling, male ruling class that she not so slyly points out. This will sound familiar to the husbands in the room. There's only one of them, I guess. Um, will make mistakes. <laughs> For Hirschman, the woman who chooses to stay at home with her children is engaging in an immoral, unethical act. Since she is robbing society of her gifts and future generations of the proper female role models. Interestingly, she is quite adamant that the fact that women, women may actually choose it is not, in her eyes, a morally valid argument. It is worth noting that the hard copy of this volume is complete with a stark red cover. Remember, it's a manifesto. The paperback version has a somewhat softer image, and the title has been changed to Get to Work and Get a Life Before It's Too Late. So... Things are a bit messy in feminism land. For some, it's a post, golden post-feminist age if we play our cards right. For others, we are losing ground. For still others, men still have all the power. We still do not get equal pay for equal work. And any day now, those crazy Christians are going to snatch our reproductive rights away if we are not careful. So... I probably have more to say here than we have time or energy for, so some of it I will summarize, but my next point would be, do we still need a feminism? Well, maybe not if you're a rich, elite, white woman living in the United States, but think about what's going on around the world, right? What about all those girls that are still missing from Nigeria? What about the women that are, and kids that are sold into sex trade, right? What about the women in Darfur who are raped, who watch while their children starve on their way to the camps? There's, there's just so many examples of the need for a, an understanding of woman and womanhood that means that it's, it's merely the elites. It's, the feminism that we have is really a feminism for the elites, like Pio was saying. I don't know about Catholic feminism being that, but. Certainly the liberal um, feminism, radical feminism that we have is a, liberal, is a feminism for the elites. The real fault line of the kind of feminism we need to correct is between haves and have-nots. So consider a couple of other facts. One in four women will experience domestic violence during her lifetime. Now, I didn't mention this. Those are just examples from the inter international scene. Think about women in our own inner cities or the fact that the, most of those women, if they have kids, and they often do, there's no fathers living in the home, right? So women experience more than four million physical assaults and rapes because of their partners, not their husbands. It's almost always um, transient boyfriends. It's not husbands that do most of the domestic violence stuff. It's transient boyfriends. 
They are more likely to be killed by an intimate partner than men. Women ages 20 to 24 at greatest risk of becoming victims of domestic violence, etc. So if you want to ask if we still need a feminism, depending on how you define it, I say we do. But the question is what kind of feminism, right? Okay. I just want to give you one example from my own rather long, lengthy work experience now. It's kind of funny. Not long ago, a female colleague of mine, a philosopher who also teaches at UST, was walking down the hall a few feet behind some male colleagues in the department, and they were talking out loud about the fact that women just can't do metaphysics. Not that long ago. Try to get a job in a philosophy department if you were a girl, and they happened to be on the hiring committee. I pointed out to my friend that the really telling thing was that they were within earshot of her but didn't notice she was there. That's, that's really funny, actually. Okay. okay, so we need a feminism. And, um, okay. Um, let's see. So, just some comments about the fact that the feminism that's out there that we're calling into question here is a feminism that counts the right to abortion and reproductive rights as the signature element. You damage that and you're done for. So what does that do? It compromises, obviously, the capacity, the significance and value of the capacity of human or of women to bear children, whether physical or spiritual. It's not biological determinism to point out that the only people who can give birth to babies are women, right? And so the idea that the only thing that really matters for women's freedom, for women's liberation, for women's well-being is this right to kill their own children. And not only that, that somehow there's a war on women that's being perpetrated by people who declare that maybe that's not such a great thing. So if I had more time, I might explain all the reasons why the only institution on the planet that really loves women is the church. Because the church is very clear that she wants us to be who we really are. And that is going to include working it wherever we want and all those other things. But to, but to do it in such a way that never compromises who we are. Right? So I'm willing to grant that those who repeat those falsehoods may truly believe it and even allow for the possibility they may actually think that all of these things are essential to a woman's happiness. I believe it was George Orwell who said that if you repeat a lie often enough, eventually people come to believe it. But we have not been taken in. And what I would hope is clear from this analysis is that it is time to hear from those for whom these others do not speak. It is time for us, that's you and I, to speak on our own behalf and expose the nature of this lie. And thus the title of my talk. It is time that the prophetic voice of women be sounded loudly and clearly. So there's a certain amount of ambiguity surrounding the word prophet, although Dr. Waldstein did a good job of defining it, so he did my work for me. But in, in the case, in w the way in which I'm using it, I mean prophet as messenger of truth. Not someone who predicts the future, but someone who states the truth in the here and now a messenger of God. A prophet is a messenger of divine truth who speaks that truth loud and clear in the here and now. 
And the thing you guys really need to get grasp, I think, is that since the latter half of the 20th century, through her popes, synods, and councils, the church has been calling and is calling even more emphatically now, calling women, especially women of faith, to a radical exercise of this prophetic office. She has made it abundantly clear in a number of ways that women in particular are called to bear witness to the truth in the here and now, some proof. Virtually every pope from Pius XII to St. John Paul II to the current Holy Father have called on women to rise to the demands of the times, to speak on behalf of the culture of life, to resist what seems to be a steady and disturbing movement of dissent. And indeed, there may be no more poignant expression of this call than the touching plea found at the end of the Second Vatican Council in the closing address to women. Have you heard this? Anybody here? You won't believe it. The council fathers tell women, this is a quote, that our hour has come, that now, when the vocation of woman is being achieved in all its fullness, now when woman has acquired in the world an influence, an effect, and a power never hitherto achieved, it is precisely at this moment when the human race is undergoing so deep a transformation that women impregnated with the spirit of the gospel can do so much to aid mankind in not falling. That's the closing address to women from the Second Vatican Council. Now, when the human race is undergoing so deep a transformation, women impregnated with the spirit of the gospel can do so much to aid mankind in not falling. Dramatic statements, there's more of them. A couple more will come up in a sec. They unquestionably give to women a rather tall order but there can be absolutely no question, not among us at least, that women are called in the most urgent of terms to be prophets and servants of truth in a world that is losing indeed may have already lost its way. It really is up to us to stand up and say, you do not speak for me. Here is the truth as I see it. I don't need to be like a man to be considered human. I don't and I refuse. Pius XII said in 1945 to a gathering of Catholic women's organization, this is a quote, this is your hour, Catholic women and Catholic girls. Public life needs you. The fortunes of the family, the fortunes of human society are at stake and they are in your hands. Pius XII, 1945, right at the close of World War II, right? We are in a mess. What are we going to do? Well, women, let's go. So the question is not if or even when. It clearly has to be now, but how? How can we serve the church and humanity by bringing that which is uniquely woman's charism to the task of recovering our culture? In other words, how can we find a way to exercise our prophetic office, not over and against that of the men in our lives, but alongside them, in such a way that the mission given to both of us by God is fulfilled, a mission that, as I mentioned already, 
is to create not only families, but human history itself. It seems to me that this is more precisely what the late Holy Father, now a saint, has left us to figure out. And this is the question I would like to pursue now. So my proposal won't be surprising. I believe we can certainly say that it is Mary, the mother of God, who serves as the first and primary icon of woman as prophet. And ultimately, my aim is to offer a fuller investigation of what this means for women in our contemporary period and to consider the implications of that for Western civilization, but we're not going to do that this afternoon. Um, I think I'll just skip on ahead to um, what I really know you came for. So woman is prophet. So we're going to return to a more explicit exploration of the idea of woman as prophet. It is the church's perennial teaching analyzed so significantly by St. John Paul II and also Hansers von Balthasar and Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger that Mary is a prototype of woman. She is the woman of the Bible, prefigured in Eve as well by the women of the Old Testament. Can I get a time check? I have 20 minutes, okay. Maybe we'll be okay. Um, I noticed that Mikhail, someone said five minutes. He said, oh, yes, ten, okay. I don't know if anybody knows. Did you just say half hour? Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So um, she is the woman of the Bible, prefigured in Eve as well as by the women of the Old Testament, and finally identified as woman at the foot of the cross as the mother of all mankind, redeemed in Christ. This teaching serves as the point of departure for the first point I would like to make. There is no other human person who deserves the title woman as prophet more than Mary. For in and through her, quite literally the truth, the incarnate word of God was spoken for all of eternity. Though he does not put it in precisely these terms, John Paul does certainly speak of Mary as prophet linking this reality with the feminine genius itself. He points out in his letter to women that to speak of Mary as prophet is to invoke her capacity for receptivity and for love, which, he argues, enables us to think of a special kind of prophetism that belongs to women in their femininity. And Mikhail unpacked that actually quite beautifully, although he used mulieris dignitatum. We have to figure out how to avoid models of male domination. Um, and so let me just skip to this part. Um, we need a proper account of the personhood of Mary, is what my argument is. If Mary's a prototype, we need to figure out who Mary really was. And I would point out that in most, um, let's say, screen versions of Mary, in most accounts of Mary, she's kind of this naive ingenue, right, who doesn't really know what she's doing. And you get the feeling that she's just like, okay, whatever, you know. Well, if you look at Moliere's, yeah, be it done to me according to your word, okay, no sweat, you know. But if you look at Moliere's Dignitatum carefully, John Paul II, he doesn't fully develop this, but he's pointing to something very different. Okay, that's where I'll start and I'll try to make it as quick as I can. So if we're gonna consider Mary the pro model and prototype, the epitome of the feminine genius, we should find in Mary the clue as to how to manifest that in fulfilling our mission. 
Not long ago, a young woman said to me at a very public event that she could not possibly think of Mary as a role model. Mary is too passive, she said. I have no wish to be a doormat. I was very grateful for the insight of John Paul II just then because, as I will show more fully in outline at least, Mary is definitely not a passive spectator in the event of the Incarnation. She is at the center of it. It is this fact that is, in a manner of speaking, a matter of historical record, which everyone really already knew, that was suddenly brought into sharp relief by the work of John Paul II. So this is in Molière's Dignitatum Four, where we read the following statement. At the same time, however, through her response of faith, Mary exercises her free will and thus fully shares with her personal and feminine I in the event of the Incarnation. Now, one of my theories as a Wojtyla JP2 scholar is that you cannot understand what he's saying in his work as Pope without grasping his philosophical foundations, and that is a clue. He's signaling, look at the acting person if you want to understand what I mean by that, and where it cashes out without going to all the philosophical details is that he's, he's pointing to the fact that in the incarnation, in the fiat, this was a radical act of self-determination on Mary's part. His anthropology begins and ends with self-transcendence, but there's three stages. There's self-possession, self-governance, and then self-determination. And that doesn't mean in the modern sense, like I get to be, decide who I am. It means that I recognize that when I make a decision or take an action, I know that what I'm doing in this moment is creating myself. It's the virtues tradition in different language. If you lie once, I tell Maddie this, if you lie once, it's one thing, but if you lie continually, you become a, a liar. Oops, I almost said lawyer. <laughs> that was just a slip. Um, but, or if you steal, I say when you go through the bulk candy aisle, you take one piece of candy, that's one thing, but if you take it every time we come mad, you'll become a thief, you know, that kind of idea. So he's saying that we determine ourselves on our way to the good in every decision we make. The efficacy of the will is really a big deal in his philosophical foundation. So, um, okay. Um, so... John Paul is himself arguing then that Mary's participation in her own fiat, as I said, is an act of radical self-determination. Um, Mary's participation in her fiat was not something that happened to her. He has two categories that he says constitute two dynamisms in human subjectivity. Man acts and something happens in man. Man acts is where you're in the territory of genuinely human acts. Uh, everything else just kind of happens. Somebody cuts you off in the freeway, you get mad, right? That's, that'd be an example of something happens in man. He's saying Mary's role in the fiat was not in the category of something happens in man. Okay. It was a fully human act because she was most certainly already in possession of herself, already able to govern herself, and therefore fully able to determine herself to make a choice that she knew would determine who she became. So to really get this, just think for a few minutes about our understanding of Mary and Luke's account of the Incarnation. Think for a minute about the kind of person Mary would have had to be, conceived as she was, according to church teaching, totally without sin. If that's true, 
what kind of self-knowledge would she have had? She was not some naive ingenue. She was a fully recollected 14-year-old, right? I guess. Who, who at least, I mean, it's at some level, given her age and the fact that she's merely human, she was in full possession of herself. When she utters her fiat, be it done to me according to thy word, she is not the young, unsophisticated, wide-eyed maiden usually portrayed in movies. The kind of self-knowledge she would have possessed would be profoundly complete, at least for her age and at a human level. Luke's gospel reveals a young woman clearly in possession of herself. What is her first act when approached by the angel Gabriel? Luke tells us that she, quote, was deeply disturbed by these words and asked herself what this greeting could mean. The first thing Mary does, and she's like this throughout the account, is she thinks. She asks questions. He said, what kind of greeting could this be? She doesn't cower or take flight or speak in tones of panic. She thinks. She first asks herself a question. She recollects herself. Who among us would have the clarity of mind to respond to an angel's declaration that we will conceive and bear a son with such an intelligent question? Because what's the next one? How can this be since I do not know man? She's saying, wait a second, I know how these things work. You're going to have to explain this to me. John Paul is telling us that Mary is anything but a doormat, that her fiat was, a, as I said, a radical act of self-determination in which she participated fully with her personal and feminine eye and thus changed the course of human history. So there's a lot we haven't said about, about this anthropological question. We need to mention the effects of original sin on women in particular, and maybe we can talk about that later. But it may help to spell out some of the implications for our work as women in the church and in the world. If we are to conform ourselves to Mary's example, there are a few things we will need to keep in mind. I mentioned this already, but I mention it again. The first thing is to realize that the feminine genius is actually a supernatural reality. It can be discussed at the level of nature, but to achieve its fullest expression, will require a tireless and persistent knocking on the doors of heaven and a complete and total surrender to the demands of charity and divine mercy. We cannot arrive at it in any meaningful sense of the term without the grace of her son. Like I said, we can laugh about how women can remember where Maddie put her tennis shoes and Andrew's always losing his cell phone and I always seem to remember where it's at last. But that is not the full expression of the feminine genius. It's a supernatural reality. If Mary's a prototype, you can be sure that grace is involved. Okay. And secondly, and at least in the temporal order, also important, to exercise the feminine genius in its prophetic mission is not to allow ourselves to be held to a false standard of what it should look like. You know, Mary is not this creature who floats along the earth on a cloud dressed in blue. Mary is a fully actualized woman, right? The kind of woman you want to be, we all want to be. A woman who is in charge of herself, who possesses herself, who is the guardian of her own mystery, like Dr. Waldstein said. And so when we're in intera interacting with our spouses, our colleagues, our fellow students, other men, men in particular, 
We don't have to act like we don't really know what's going on or be kind of pink in our attitude. Not that anyone here would, would do that, but do you know what I'm saying? On the other hand, we can't be strident and, if I could use this word, sort of, you know, bitchy. Right? That's a big mistake, because then they don't listen. So how do you find that? That's the $64,000 question. Well, the only way to do that is to be authentically who you are. Who you are, right? Be authentically who you are and bring to the table what you bring, never forgetting that women have a particular gift to offer. All right, so um, here's some help from Pius XII, who told the women of his day that it is not enough to be good, tender, and generous. One must also be, he said, wise and strong. That's Pius XII. It's not enough to be good, tender, and generous. One must also be wise and strong. You follow me? The women that YT was talking about are Polish women who don't take guff from anybody. Yeah. Okay, so I'm almost done, actually, which is probably lucky. This leaves us with a personal question. If this is woman's work, we have to ask ourselves, are we at the center of the salvific work that could be and should be taking place in our homes, our workplace, our culture? Are we reflections of the supernatural reality that is the full expression of the feminine genius? I don't want to reveal too much, but I'm personally very grateful for the sacrament of reconciliation. I actually started, started to go every week because every week I need new instructions. Well, actually, they're always the same ones, to tell you the truth, which I, Father assures me is a good thing. He says, if you come every week with new sins, that would be kind of awkward. So, but I mean, you count on it, right? Count on it. And I argue that when accompanied by the recognition that her self-knowledge would most certainly have been deep and profound, conceived without original sin as she was, Mary offers all women a model for what it means to be woman as prophet in an era such as ours. So I will bring these remarks to a close now by saying that it is to the fullness, it is to the fullness of what it means to be woman that the church calls us to bring not only our natural capacity to attend to the needs of others, but to offer our wisdom, our strength, our love, indeed everything we are to aid humanity in not falling. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.